Hi folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for listening to the Fat-Burning Man Show, where we talk about real food and real results. Today's special episode of the show is with Lierre Keith. She's the author of The Vegetarian Myth, and I think there's a lot of value that you can get from this particular show. Lierre's quick backstory, and we'll get to this more later, is that she was a, a vegan for 20 plus years and experienced a lot of health issues as a direct result of that. And she's going to share how she uh, mitigated a lot of those, uh, the risks that were in her diet, how she solved a lot of her health problems, and also how she deals with the ones that may be permanent as a result of, of her diet and lifestyle at the time. There's a lot to share about not just cleaning up your, your health and making sure you're doing everything um, for you and your family that's going to nurture your bodies and your minds, but also the world around us. So stay tuned for that really cool show. A couple of announcements before we get to it. Uh, thank you so much for all your support for the two apps that we just launched. Uh, Gluten-free desserts. Allison, my girlfriend, was on the show last week. We talked about how to survive the holidays and make some delicious desserts. We released gluten-free desserts for the uh, for the App Store on Apple devices, and it went super well. We hit the top bestseller charts um, with that and our other app at the same time during Black Friday and Thanksgiving. So we couldn't have done any of that without you. So we're just so thankful for all the support, and we're already getting. A a lot of emails from you guys talking about all the cookies and pies, especially the bacon, bourbon, apple pie that you guys have been making. And we're so happy to be a part of your holidays. So lots of recipes to come and uh, lots of fun to come too. And I have a few posts that if, if you're trying to stay lean during the holidays, stay tuned to my blog, fatburningman.com uh, as the, and the shows as well, because I'm going to help you navigate through that because it can be a little bit dangerous when you're around the cookie table throughout the holidays. So we're here to help. Our other big app launch was Caveman Feast, uh, and that's recipes with George Bryant, who was also on the show a few weeks back. And we launched that for Android devices as well as a new version for Apple. So if you haven't checked that out, it's Caveman Feast. You can find it on, on most major marketplaces. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're really gonna like it. You guys are making a lot of those recipes as well. And they're all paleo. So gluten-free desserts is more of like the diet that Allison and I eat at home, and we do include some ancient grains sometimes, coconut flour, almond flour, that sort of thing, and occasionally baking soda and, you know, those little, like, Neolithic cheat foods, but it's all in good fun, and, you know, pie is delicious, so enjoy. If you'd like to stay up to date, there are a couple of other things coming up down the pike, and uh, the best way to get in touch is just sign up for my email list at fatburningman.com, and as a special thanks, I send you uh, some free goodies and a video course to help you navigate losing uh, stubborn body fat as well as getting in the best shape of your life. So check that out. A couple of things to come. Um, we're working on something actually for personal trainers. I know a lot of you guys uh, either are trainers yourselves, have gyms, or you'd like to be. And so I'm doing a project with uh, David King, who's one of the top personal trainers in Austin, uh, teaching people how they can start making changes uh, to other people's lives and become a trainer or start your own business that's that's based around improving the lives of others through nutrition, uh, health, and fitness. So that'll be coming down the pike in the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned for that. All right, so on to the show with Lierre Keith. We talk about why being a vegan may be harmful for your health, how agriculture broke the planet and also made us fat and sick, and what we can do to reclaim our health and save the world at the same time. All right, let's go hang out with Lierre. 
All right, folks, we're here with Lierre Keith, who's a writer, farmer, and activist. She's the author of six books, including The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability. Welcome, Lierre. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. It's awesome to have you here. So I was just telling you before this, this interview that a lot of folks who are listening right now have been requesting you specifically because of your experience. A lot of people, when they find the uh, ancestral approach or, or paleo or Weston A. Price, what have you, they come to that through being vegan often or being vegetarian on and off for a while, including myself. And so I, I know you have a lot of insight about this, and I'm really excited that you're here. Well, again, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So why don't we, um, I hate to do this with the first question, but I do think that your story is very unique and cool and it will resonate with a lot of people. So can you walk us through um, your your time as a vegetarian and then kind of how you moved into what you believe and, and live today? Right. So that's the question everybody wants, um, which is <laughs> fine. It's, you know, I have life experience here and I think it does speak to a lot of people who yeah. tried the same thing and it failed for them as well. And then you're sort of left in the wreckage going, why didn't this work? It mm -hmm. was supposed to be the righteous thing. And I'm left with a pile of health problems that are never going to go away. Right. So what did I do wrong or why did this not work? Because it was supposed to be the, you know, the one true way that was going to lead us to peace and justice and health forever. And it didn't work. Yeah. So I became a vegan when I was 16. So just to note, I was never a vegetarian. I was mm -hmm. completely hardcore from the very beginning. And the reason I became a vegan was because I met another vegan, which I think is often how that happens. Yeah. And being 16 years old, I was extremely idealistic. Um, I had always cared very passionately about environmental things. So when I met this other young teenage girl who was a vegan, her family was vegan, and she had all this incredible information about the horrors of factory farming, all of that is true. I mean, I think we can all agree, no matter yeah. what we eat, that that needs to just end. And I was very moved by it. It felt very compelling. And she had an answer to everything. So within the week, I was a vegan. Um, I was convinced. You know, as the Quakers say, you know, you're a convinced Quaker. I was a convinced vegan. That was it. I was done. <laughs> um, and, you know, part of the problem is that when you live in an urban or suburban area, I mean, I had no idea where my food came from. Factory farming is just, it's the very beginning of the horrors of mm -hmm. this food system. I didn't know. I had no access to other alternate information about what might be wrong with the solutions that the vegans were suggesting. It all made sense because I didn't have that larger perspective because I lived in this urban environment. I had no idea where my food came from. Yeah. I just thought, well, if it, if it doesn't involve um, these terrible factory farming practices, it must be good. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, turned out not to be true. But that was a long long, long journey of trying to discover more information. Nobody gave that to me. I had to find it for myself. Mm -hmm. So I became a vegan. Within a year and a half, two years, I started to have really serious health problems. And I never associated it with the diet. I mean, that's part of the problem is that once you adopt something that really becomes your identity, mm -hmm. which I think is true for most vegans, certainly, it becomes really hard to question it. Uh, because you're questioning your sense of self at that point. Yeah. It's not just you know, what you eat, it becomes who you are. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really hard. You know, when it starts to fail you, it's, it's just, it's inconceivable that something could be wrong with the diet itself. Yeah. Um, and I will say that most doctors don't have a clue about nutrition either. Mm -hmm. No matter who I went to or what symptoms I presented, not a one of them said, what are you eating? I was never once asked that question about yeah. diet. Now that was not true for the Chinese medicine people, the acupuncturists and whatnot. They always asked and they absolutely down the line said, this is not going to work. Hmm. Um, and I refuse to believe them. So wow. I would just stop going, 
even though they were able to help me sometimes, you know, I was like, yeah. I just couldn't. And they knew to give up that when you're faced with somebody who's that ideological, especially so young and impassioned and, you know, so hard lined, they weren't going to get through and they knew it. So they would do what they could for me, but it wasn't very much because mm -hmm. I wasn't willing to change what I ate. Yeah. So I get emails now from those people who have found my book incredibly helpful to reach other people exactly like me. They're like, yep. I can at least give them your book now and they will be walked through a whole different perspective and it seems to help. So that's, I mean, I feel like I've done my work if I can at least help other people, you know, get back to their health. It's, you know, that's an incredible thing to do for other people. So I'm very, very happy that at least, you know, my life story can, if it can help some other person not do what I've done to myself. Anyway, so my health failed in a whole bunch of different ways. Some of it's permanent. Some of it got better. Um, after I began to eat a more appropriate human diet. Mm -hmm. So repair is possible, you know, no matter what health issues you have, there is always some hope. And even the stuff that's permanent, it at least got better. You know, I'm not in the kind of debilitating pain that I was by the time I was done being a vegan. I mean, I could barely get off the couch. It was so bad. Really? So, uh, so the main thing that happened was my spine started to fall apart. I have degenerative disc disease. And in somebody who's 18, that makes no sense. The doctors were completely stumped as to what was wrong with me and what had happened. Because now they'll look at my MRIs and they think I was in some kind of massive car accident really? or I fell off the roof. Yeah, they'll be wow. like, you had a skydiving accident, right? I mean, this is horrendous. Yeah. And I'm like, no, actually, it's called veganism. <laughs> and this is what it will do to you long term. So that's there's that. That's permanent. It doesn't go away. Um, I My menstrual cycle completely stopped after about a year and a half. And that is very common for women who are vegans. Now I understand why. It's very, very simple. All of your sex hormones are made from cholesterol. And if you're not eating any, that's it. Everything grinds to a halt. It's mm -hmm. true for men. It's true for women. You have to have some cholesterol in order to make any sex hormones. And um, you also need some fat, as a especially as a female, mm -hmm. to have a healthy reproductive system. Right. And you don't get any as right. a vegan. You know, all you're eating is those, you know, those awful, you know, they're just dreadful, those industrial seed oils. Mm -hmm. They're not meant for, for human consumption. So all of that is just, that's the end of it. So yeah. luckily I never yeah. wanted to get pregnant, but it was, it was out of the question. I never would have. Yeah. Um, and that cleared up within three weeks. I mean, literally after 20 years of almost never getting a period, three weeks into eating more appropriate food, it was like, well, look what just happened. And I haven't missed one that's since. Incredible. I mean, it was, it was the most dramatic thing, yeah. like just complete repair overnight, which tells you actually something about the biological urge you know, for the species to continue, that that was just like, please, please yeah. be a human female, <laughs> do something with this uterus, we will make it happen. Um, and so that came back right away. That was great. Uh, my sister was not so lucky. She also was a vegan for almost as long as I was and ended up with horrible endometriosis. Absolutely. The soy was what created that. There is no mm. question in her history. It was the soy. And she ended up having to have a hysterectomy, which wow. is no fun for anyone. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is what happens when you eat things that we were not intended to eat. Um, and I certainly know other women, you know, who have done this in their past and they've ended up with the same thing, bad fibroids, endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And this is the same problem. It's because you're not getting the cholesterol, which is the basic building block you know, for all of your sex hormones, you cannot produce something out of nothing. You've got to have that cholesterol to have that base upon which to build and make things like sex hormones. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. eating the soy on top of that, it's, you know, those terrible phytoestrogens, which act like estrogens, but are not. Yeah. So they will latch onto yeah. your estrogen receptors. Your body sort of thinks it as estrogen. It doesn't. And from that point forward, it can't do what it needs to do because it doesn't have what it needs. So it's, you just end up a mess. So that was another yeah. thing. Terrible hypoglycemia. This is a really common mm. thing with people 
who eat way too much carbohydrate, whether right. or not they're vegetarian or right. not. And we know that ridiculous food pyramid thing, we're supposed to be eating, you know, 500 servings of grain a day or whatever it is they've got us on. Yeah. And this is what's created this, you know, absolute explosion in diabetes and that all the, you know, the metabolic syndrome stuff. I mean, now we've got all this, you know, what used to be called adult onset diabetes. It's now, you know, children, teenagers, they can't call it that anymore. Mm -hmm. And this is because, you know, they did these tremendous public health efforts. We'll put that in quotes, public health, yeah. to get us to all eat more grain and not to eat animal products. And look what happened 20 years into it. You know, all these poor kids are just, they're a mess. So yeah. I had, of course, had yeah. that. That's permanent. You blow through your insulin receptors, they don't come back. So I really have to eat, be very, very careful about the level of carbohydrate I eat meal to meal. I have to be really careful on that. So there's that problem. Um, you know, the terrible dry skin, dry hair, all that stuff, that cleared up within three days. You eat enough saturated fat and why do you know your skin actually bends when you move? Yeah. My skin hurt. So, I mean, it hurt. It was that dry. Really? And I just accept, yeah, I accepted that was normal. It didn't yeah. even occur to me that was something that could go away. Within three days of eating eggs, gone. I mean, I woke up one morning wow. and I was like, wow, I can bend my arms and legs and it doesn't <laughs> hurt. It was amazing. I, and I looked different too. My whole complexion changed on my face. So that was a kind of an amazing thing. I ended up with an autoimmune disease. I have Hashimoto's. Mm. Um, and gluten, of course, is what's fingered for yep. all the autoimmune yep. diseases. So that's, again, something that's permanent. But taking all the gluten out and being incredibly scrupulous about that. And I also take low-dose naltrexone, which is an absolute miracle for some of us with autoimmune stuff. Mm -hmm. That is not the thing way back. I now have my TPO antibodies are at 21, and 20 is the diagnostic cutoff. So I barely have Hashimoto's at this point. Good for you. That's but amazing. I know. it's That's fabulous. Like the autoimmune, the part where you're sort of eating yourself, mm -hmm. that has definitely been kicked back. But I live with this chronic exhaustion that's just, you know, my thyroid just doesn't function correctly. Mm -hmm. So that's no fun. And I'm freezing cold, of course. But um you know, that's just the way it goes. I'm stuck with some of this. Um, but again, you know, you can repair some. I mean, a lot of this has gotten better. You know, there's stuff you can do to fix even what has gone tremendously wrong. So yeah, that's sort of my survivor mission is to tell other people it doesn't work long term. There's a whole generation of us who tried this already. That's the thing that kills me. Yeah. And I wrote a book. Other people have written books too. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm certainly not the only one, but it's really hard because I, I really want to get into you know, I want the, the people who are young and idealistic and think this is how to save the world. I want them to hear this before it's too late because I understand their passion and yeah. their underlying values are not wrong. That's not the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is this bigger information. It's going to wreck your health and it's not saving the planet. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I had to really put together from lots of other wonderful sources, but I had to put it all together from this perspective of someone who was a recovering vegan. Like, mm -hmm. why did I think this would work? Why did I think it was the way to eat? And why every one of those things dead ends, you know, none of it was actually turned out to be true. Yeah. And we, I think we can already, we've said this already, but we all agree factory farming is wrong. Right. That is not the issue. Right. Right. So anyway, that's pretty much my story. You know, my, my health failed to the point where there was no, there was no other option. I had to start eating meat and the effects were dramatic. And I mean, within 10 seconds, I was a different person. Really? And I'm not the only person who has this story where you take that one bite of meat and you come to life again. Yep. I mean, I've had other people explain it. Like, you know, I felt like I was plugged into a wall socket suddenly, like <laughs> I had energy again, or yeah. I came out of a coma. I mean, that's exactly what it feels like. I know not yeah. everybody has that, but a lot of us do where mm -hmm. you suddenly, you come back to life just from one bite of having you know, we don't have this concept in, in the West, but certainly the Chinese medicine people and different forms of traditional medicine mm -hmm. do have this concept about chi or prana or life force. And animal products have that. Meat has that. Yeah. And 
ants just don't. I mean, they're really different from us and they just don't provide that. So. Yeah. I remember I, I had a similar moment, um, but it was much, uh, much less dire. I remember I was, I was training for sports. I, I think it was football season in high school and we had this wonderful vegetarian, uh, actually the food service director was vegetarian. So for every meat option, we would have a non-meat option or an imitation meat option or what have you. And so it was, it was pretty easy for me to be vegetarian for a while, uh, just in terms of convenience. Cause sometimes it can be very inconvenient, right? Like you can't get any food sure, that doesn't hard. have some sort yeah. of animal, yeah. uh, part of some kind in it. But I did that and I, I did it for a while, but I remember we did this like huge weight training type thing. And the entire time that I was training in the back of my mind, <laughs> I just saw this, this picture of steak. It was like pulling at me <laughs> and, and it was so bizarre and visceral, but one of the best lessons, um, I have ever received was from my father who said, listen to your body. Right. And, uh, and so after that, even though I hadn't touched meat in, in years at that point, I went and I got a steak and I remember those first 10 seconds, you know, like the first few yeah. bites, it was just like this, this energy, um, was completely different than what I had been experiencing. And in fact, it was the thing that I had been lacking. It was that, that vitality, not to say that every time you eat a piece of meat, that's what happens. But when you don't have it and you're severely deficient in a lot of the things that are contained within meat, for example, it's, it's pretty shocking what happens. Yeah. And I would say after about three weeks, four weeks, that really incredible sensation stopped. Mm -hmm. You know, I was able to absorb enough that I wasn't that depleted anymore. So I don't really feel that anymore. Unless I've had a really hard day, then sometimes yeah. if I eat liver or if I eat beef, it'll be like, oh yeah, I feel better pretty quickly. But that really dramatic hit, um, that that did fade after a bit as I started to rebuild. But you know, a lot of people sort of sneer at this, and it, I, yeah, I mean, we can name all the nutrients that are in meat that aren't anywhere else, you know, the CoQ10, the carnitine, you know, various the heme iron, but mm -hmm. it's bigger than that. Yeah, it really is. There's some kind of vital force that's just in, especially red meat that you're not going to get anywhere else. And, you know, you can drive yourself into the ground and then experience it, or you can just believe some of us who have been through this because mm -hmm. it's real. Yeah. Now you mentioned that a, a whole generation has already been through this. Um, but you can start to see this, this whole vegan or the newly marketed like plant-based or plant-fueled approach, um, coming out in loads of new products. There's a clearly a huge market for this. And a lot of the food manufacturers are catching on. But it seems like a lot of the, this new generation isn't really in touch with the generation who's already done this. What would you say to those folks who are, who are really excited about the, the vegan slash plant-based approach to life? So this is a really much bigger problem than just uh, you know factory farmed meat versus not. Um, and I had to do a tremendous amount of both research and soul searching and thinking and learning in order to understand how large the problem actually was. Mm -hmm. So the problem is actually agriculture. Agriculture is the most destructive thing people have done to the planet. And you have to understand why, like what is agriculture? So we've been living in an agricultural society for 10,000 years. Um, so it feels like, you know, air or God. I mean, it's just there. You don't mm -hmm. question it. Um, the problem is that, you know, for most of our time on this planet, and it's really two and a half million years, we did not do this thing called agriculture. We were hunter-gatherers. We got our food from inside living communities, you know, biotic, resilient communities mm -hmm. that produced more life. So generation after generation, um, 
there was more topsoil, there was more diversity, you know, there evolution worked its way through and, you know, more species arrived and some dropped off the tree and some joined. And there's this, you know, sort of trajectory from the very, you know, the very simplest beginning living organisms of those proteins self-organizing all the way to this tremendous biological diversity now that's lush and living and will continue until the sun burns out, right? So yeah. this incredible thing that's just life, this community of life, and it's all completely interwoven. And every single one of us plays a role in that somehow, right? We're either producing or um, we're recycling, we're degrading, you know, we're, we're doing one or the other. Um, so the problem with agriculture is that it destroys all that mm -hmm. because you have to know what agriculture is. You take a piece of land and you clear every living thing off it. So you bear that ground, you destroy that community, whether it's a forest or whether it's a grassland, it gets pulled down. You have to destroy it and then you plow up the ground and then you plant these annual monocrops. So instead of having this rich diversity of mostly perennial species, what you've got is annual crops instead and it's a monoculture. And year by year, not only are you drawing down that entire community, I mean, you've literally just pushed them off. Mm -hmm. They've got nowhere to go. I mean, it's mass extinction for animals and plants. So at this point, 98% of the old growth forests are gone and 99% of the world's grasslands are gone, simply gone. That is what agriculture is. There's not a nice way to do this. That's not like agriculture when we're feeling evil. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. You yeah. take that land, you take it over. I call it biotic cleansing because mm -hmm. you're pushing all that life off and now you're only using it to grow humans on it. And a few other species can survive there as well. So corn has been incredibly successful. Yeah. Wheat has been incredibly successful. Soy, they've taken over massive amounts of the planet. So they hitched their, you know, they hitched their, uh, their future to us, to humans, and it worked, right? They got us to destroy the forest and the grasses and plant them instead. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've done their work for them. And, you know, as a species, it's incredibly successful short term. Long term, it means the planet's just been trashed. Yeah. So that's the problem. That's what agriculture is. So mm -hmm. you might think, well, there's nothing dead on my plate because you don't see a dead cow. But yeah. what you're seeing is a dead ecosystem. You're seeing dead rivers, dead forests, dead grasslands, dead wetlands. That's what's in wheat and corn and soy, mm -hmm. plus a whole bunch of fossil fuel at this point. So one of the main problems with this is that it draws down the topsoil as well. Every time you clear that land, you're destroying the soil. And to put some numbers on that, you know, one season of planting those annual monocrops, you can lose over 2,000 years of topsoil in wow. one season. Yeah, that's how bad it is. There were uh, farms on the first day of the Dust Bowl in South Dakota that lost all their soil in one day. In one day. That's thousands of years of nature's work gone. And they mm -hmm. were just down to the subsoil. And you can go online, look at the pictures. You know, it's just these gigantic dust clouds rolling across the continent and out into the Atlantic Ocean. And it, it, the soil coated ships that were halfway across the sea. That's mm -hmm. how much soil was blowing away. And that's what happens when you rip up grasslands because it's the roots that hold that soil in place. Right. And right. then you've got all that cellulotic matter from the top. The, the Literally, the bodies of the plants protect the soil as well from the top. So from rain, from wind, from sun. It's just soil is just like us. You know, when it's exposed, it dies, right? Yeah. It, it needs yeah. to be protected. So that's what agriculture does. And so through history, you know, there's seven different places where agriculture began. And that living pattern is called civilization. So the problem is you're on drawdown from the moment you start. You pull down your forest, you plow up your prairie. Um, now you're drawing down the soil. You're also drawing down the water. Um, you know, you've killed all those other species. And now the, and now you're living in densities that require the importation of resources because you've killed your own. Now you've got to go out and get them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's where militarism and slavery come from. 
And this is the pattern of civilization. You've got this bloated power center right at the center of it all. And then around it are all the conquered colonies. Mm -hmm. And that's why that pattern is inevitable because it's based on drawdown. You are not living within your solar budget. You're not living with all these other species that make life possible. You've killed them all, right? You've decimated the place. And now you've got to bring them in from somewhere else. Well, I hate to tell you, but nobody willingly gives up their land, their water, their soil, their trees. Yeah. It means you yeah. have to conquer them. Mm -hmm. And that's why civilizations are always surrounded by conquered colonies. Eventually, the entire thing collapses. You take all the resources that you can from those conquered neighbors, and you're still on drawdown. And eventually, all the soil washes into the sea kills all the rivers, you know, everything's gone, and then it collapses. And that's mm -hmm. ultimately the fate of every civilization. They last between 800 and 2,000 years until their soil gives out. That's the exact number. And then we're, you're done. Yeah. Um, and then it rises up somewhere else. So you can follow this all around the Mediterranean region, just for instance. So bit by bit, the mm -hmm. Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, everybody destroys more trees, more soil washes into the Mediterranean. Um, the only thing that saves Northern Europe from the Romans is the Alps. They can't get across those mountains, um, but eventually the whole thing collapses, right? So that's the pattern that we've been on civilized cultures for the last 10,000 years. Um, it's not every human. This is not inevitable. There yeah. are still 46 tribes of hunter-gatherers on the planet. They need to be left alone. Okay. They have their cultures. They have their way of life. And that is the only way of life that's ultimately sustainable. This is very hard for us to hear because we're attached to this way of life. But this mm -hmm. was a one-time blowout and we're yeah. reaching the yeah. end. So all the topsoil was gone by 1950 on this planet. It had essentially been blown through by this process of agriculture. And at that point, there should have been a natural correction. It's not a fun process, but that's what happens when you overshoot. Uh, nature takes care of it. Um, what happened instead was this thing called the Green Revolution. Mm -hmm. So scientists had figured out how to extract usable nitrogen from oil and gas um, during starting in World War One, and then it kicks into gear in World War Two. This is to make explosives, you know, make yeah, bombs from bomb right? making. And then they they transform those bomb making plants into fertilizer making plants, mm -hmm. and suddenly all this nitrogen gets poured across the world. Yes, you get incredible plant growth, you know, at that point, but now you're completely dependent on something that is not going to come again, mm -hmm. oil and gas. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't actually a plan with the future. I mean, oil doesn't reproduce. And we are now looking at peak oil. So they were able to extend this, you know, another generation or two. But the end is still written into the beginning. You can't live outside nature's budget and expect this to go well in the end. So the human population quadrupled because we've been eating oil and gas. But mm -hmm. again, this is not a play with the future. And we are going to be faced with this inevitable population crash at the end. So we only have two options at this point. We can take control as a species, realize what we've done over two or three generations. We could reduce our numbers mm -hmm. pretty simply to something that's more sustainable um, and repair what we've destroyed. And that's really my passionate plea to those people who believe in this plant-based diet. You know, mm -hmm. More of the same is not going to save us. Yeah. We've got to repair those forests and those grasslands and those wetlands and live again inside them. And that's the piece they don't understand. And I yeah. don't blame them for not understanding. There's not like a million people out there talking about how agriculture's destroyed the planet. Every generation, there is somebody who does it. I mean, I looked back all the way back to the ancient Greeks. You can find Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates all talked about how the soil was washing off the mountains. The fertility was all gone. The rivers had been wow. destroyed. I yeah. mean, it's everybody notices that this is what happens, mm -hmm. but it never makes it into the popular imagination. Why is that? I think mostly because I think because people are dependent on it. Mm. That's the problem with this. You know, once you get started on this cycle, it's really hard to break out. Mm -hmm. um, in ancient Rome, it was in fact um, a lot of their food at, by the end came from Egypt because the Nile, of course, was this incredibly fertile river. Mm -hmm. 
and it would supply silt every year so that the, right along that Nile, you know, it would flood and that would provide fertility. So it was really hard to kill that area because of, there was so much silt coming down the river. Mm-hmm. There was almost a little more fertility. They were doing it slowly, but it took a lot longer than the other rivers. But the Nile, that whole region in Egypt was so important to the survival of Rome that Egypt itself was a personal possession of the emperor of Rome. And anybody who interfered with the offloading of grain on those boats across the Mediterranean, um, it was summary execution. You could be killed instantly if you interfered with this at all because they knew that the population was dependent on that grain for food. Um, so, and that was, I mean, it's quite clear that they knew because they would kill you yeah. if you got in the way because everybody, they would have starved in a few days without it. Um, so I think that that's, there's a tremendous um, just level of denial that everybody's living in yeah. about yeah. the situation that we're in. And the fact is it's quite grim at this point. Yeah. Without that fossil fuel, there's going to be mass starvation. And it, we are we are at the at the top of you know that that curve is on the down. I yeah. mean, they can keep trying to frack and do whatever they're doing, but folks, you know, we're running out. I mean, you can't make more of it. Like this was not a plan with the future, and that's the problem. So mm-hmm. these facts look really grim to people, and they so they people just pull back from it. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to know. And I'll say the other problem is that less than two percent of um, the labor market in the United States is now about farms. There's farming is now such a significantly insignificant, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's so, there's so few farmers left that the um, U S department of labor calls it a a insignificant number um, because it's all done with these just huge fact, you know, just gigantic tractors and stuff. You don't need labor on farms anymore. And all the family farms are dead because of farm policy. And even that, that terminology, the way that they're communicating that in semantics, it's an insignificant number that, that just, portrays so much right so my brother's an organic farmer um and i've, I've kind of seen him choose his career path and right. when someone says even if we go to something together you know if i say i you know have a podcast show or whatever or a publishing company they're like oh cool that's that's wonderful or when i was a consultant that's you know they're like good job that's great with my brother it's like oh I, i'm a, an organic farmer and they're just like, oh, cool. You know, that's that's nice. Yeah. But like, right. what are you going to do with your life, really? You know, that's what they, the right. conversation they're having with them. Like, when are you going to get a real job? And it's just, it's so terrible because I think that happened quickly, right? Farmers used to be the people who fed the right. world. That was an incredibly important job. And I was thinking about this recently when we were uh, talking to each other. He's he's always been someone who really lives in the present and uh, in the past in a way. And he tries to do... Um, the vast majority of his farming without uh, any sort of fossil fuel, so which means he uses a tractor like once or twice a year, and he does everything else animal powered. And so he's kind of back there, and he's serving the world by feeding the people around him by running a CSA. And like we have a very similar mission, but I'm just doing it in this techie world, which is kind of silly, but it's just it, I think it's illustrative of the fact that right now. We're so caught up in all these gizmos and technology that we're not acknowledging the importance of what actually feeds and sustains us in the world, which is those farmers. And especially in America, it seems like we just don't care. Well, we don't. The number one cause of death for farmers, both in the United States and in India, is suicide. Number one cause of death. And they're essentially serfs at this point mm-hmm. to the six corporations that control the world food supply. And there's nothing they can do to get out of that situation. At this point, the food policy is so skewed around the world that they're just stuck in a completely untenable position. Mm-hmm. So, and in the United States, they kill themselves by throwing themselves into the machinery 
to make it look like an accident. So at least their families can get some insurance money. And in India, they tend to just drink the poison that is the industrial chemicals. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but suicide is the, the number one cause of death. And that to me is one of the grimmest things I've heard, you know, mm -hmm. in years. It's really, really horrible for all of them. But they have been reduced to serfs. That's mm -hmm. really what's happened because of the international farm policy. Now, I would imagine though, in the past five years, since, you know, you've come out with these books and you've really devoted your life to, to spreading this message. Um, in the past five years, it's clear that something is happening. There's, there's this growing awareness around uh, the fact that we do need to eat better. We need to uh, believe in food that comes from a different and better world than it comes from now. You're seeing farmer's markets pop up everywhere. People are getting into these newfangled, crazy diets that are eating like people did hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, it, it seems like this is changing a little bit. There are the people who are getting worse. There are the people who are getting better. And the people who are getting better, that, that group is getting very niched and tight and excited. Can you feel that? Yes. And I'm, I couldn't have done what I had done unless some people had come before me to, you know, had really laid some of this groundwork. So, I mean, absolutely Sally Fallon and Western oh, Christ yeah. Foundation, oh, yeah. absolutely key in my recovery and in my understanding of so much of this, um, all that information about grass feeding and why that's so important to human health mm -hmm. and you know, how cows actually work. Like, what is the biological process of a cow? Why do they need grass instead of grain? I didn't know any of that. Why would I know any of that? I was this yeah. suburban kid who grew up surrounded by cement. I'd never mm -hmm. seen a cow. I mean, what did I know about cows? <laughs> So that was an, just incredible amount of work that those people have done. And even when I joined Weston Price, I mean, I've watched that just explode into local chapters all around the world. And yeah. that is so amazing to see that happen because they're just dead on. I mean, they get the whole picture, mm -hmm. how it has to be grass fed, how you have to buy it from a farmer. You're not really going to be able to find this in a store, develop a relationship with these local farmers, fighting the raw milk fight, you know, how to ferment vegetables so that they're super edible and you get all your, you know, biological friends in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just amazing, the stuff that they've done. And then they do all that legislative fight as well for all, on, on behalf of all of us. I mean, yeah. they are in there yeah. in Washington really lobbying. Mm -hmm. So they've got every piece of the puzzle. I mean, it's an incredible organization. And just to popularize Weston Price, Price's work again, you know, that had really fallen out of favor. I never would have found that on my own. I had no idea what had gone wrong, mm -hmm. you know. And so to find all of that and to read his work, you know, however dated it is, there's still incredible information in there that everybody should have. Yeah. Those photographs were so compelling. More than Just anything else. The teeth, you know, yeah. on those people. Here they are eating their traditional diets and here they are the next generation eating the so-called displacing foods of modern commerce. And you see their teeth are a mess. And we all had that birthright of beautiful teeth and beautiful bones mm -hmm. and mental health and, you know, perfect health from generation to generation. That was taken from us. But I, you know, without those photographs, without that book, it it's it was nowhere near as compelling. And I never would have found that on my own. So yeah. there's all kinds of people who have already done a lot of this work. And then you have the farmers like Joel Salatin. I mm -hmm. mean, this is incredible stuff. You know, he's out there doing it, explaining how is topsoil built? Why mm -hmm. is it important? You know, and they've done it. They've had to move the fence posts on his farm because they've grown so much soil. The fences were too low. When does that ever happen on this yeah. planet? I mean, that's an <laughs> so amazing cool. thing. And he's totally accessible, you know, as yeah. a writer, as a farmer. It's just step by step. This is how you can do this on your farm. Yeah. So yeah. it was really great when I had chickens and stuff. I was able to just buy his books. This is mm -hmm. how you do it. And it was great. It was like somebody had already done it before me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the piece of the puzzle that I added was just, I think there was the information about how agriculture was so destructive, what it's yeah. done 
not just to human health, but also to human society. So all of that was information that I was able to find just historically, mm -hmm. but nobody had ever quite put it together, I think, in the way that I had. I just, none of this was, you know, it wasn't like it was new. It's just nobody had packaged it before for people who were environmentalists or yeah. who thought they were doing the right thing. And I think coming from my life experience, I could speak to people in a way that others couldn't because I'd been in that world. Mm -hmm. So I understand what their concerns are and I could address them one by one. Yeah. So I think that was the part of it that I added. But I have to say that it's very, um, I'm very moved on a daily basis because I get emails from the exact people that you're describing mm -hmm. who tried the other, it didn't work, they don't know why. And then my book is the one that that really convinces them. Yeah. And because it 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 tries to address the ethical questions, the environmental questions, not just the health questions, because a lot of people will suffer if they think they're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's very commendable. But the point is that suffering on this doesn't help. Yeah. You're not actually helping animals of the earth by destroying your body. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I get these emails all the time that say, thank you for, you know, you held my hand and you walked me through it. And now I understand there's a better way. And it's just, it's just very, um, I just feel very honored that people take me seriously enough and mm -hmm. that I'm able to help them, you know, figure out that there is this way bigger perspective about what's wrong yeah. on yeah. this planet. And now they understand, oh, I don't have to change my base values. Sustainability matters. Compassion matters. Um, you know, questioning human hubris, that really, it matters. We need a better set of values, but agriculture isn't the way to do that. It's, yeah. we've really got yeah. to repair. And then they suddenly it sort of opens a huge vista on what they can do. Right. And then they can go find grass, grass-based farms in their area and know that they're building topsoil mm -hmm. with every bite they eat, you know, that the animals had good lives, that they're supporting their local economies, not these giant, um, you know, the giant corporate industrial interests that control wheat and soy and corn, mm -hmm. you know, as they destroy the planet, that there actually is a completely different way to eat that makes all of us whole again. So, yeah, I think that that's, um, if I've been able to do anything that that's what, that's what my book was about. And it's just, it's amazing to watch how many people, I think this movement's getting bigger and bigger all the time from yeah. every angle, yeah. it you is. know, which is it really is. great. The health angle, the environmental mm -hmm. angle, we've put all these pieces together in a way that, that makes sense to people once they're willing to engage with the information, mm -hmm. you can start to see it in a better way. And I think one of the coolest things that happens is is vegans are so devout and strict. And, you know, there are all these stereotypes. And a lot of them, since I lived them, I know are true. <laughs> yeah. But the coolest thing is that when you start aligning that, uh, that power and that discipline towards something that's the next level, like you're talking about, um, going back to, say, Weston A. Price versus just... Or, or hunter gathering lifestyles, that sort of thing, instead of just thinking about meat. When you extend that, you don't need to abandon all of your beliefs and ethics, aside from maybe understanding the way that you eat meat in a different way than you might have before. But I think, you know, for me, it was when I started with this, it was really the ethics that made it so easy to eat um, or avoid eating meat uh, initially. And so, it was actually reading the omnivore's dilemma for the first time mm -hmm. that that just brought a lot of things to light and i'm just like well i guess i can't eat vegetables either <laughs> no right. and i certainly can't right. eat soy or corn and it looks like wheat isn't that great of an option either i don't know what to do and that was such a cool moment because it it made me think that you know i wasn't perhaps 100% correct in the way that i was living and what i believed at that point there was more to learn and the more that you learn you see that you can align those ethics of believing in a better world and and treating all of the animals and humans and plants in your world better um, but you just live in a slightly different way 
but you can still like actually I think this would be a great point to talk about what is on Lear Keith's plate at this point and how do you <laughs> think about each thing that's on your plate right well like for breakfast I usually have um, bone broth that's mm -hmm. what I start with which I make myself and I you know boil it for 24 hours and I, you know it's really dense stuff it's great um, and I and eggs usually is what I have for breakfast and I often will have either bacon or sausage or something to go with it there's a really great farm near me where they have pasture-raised pork. Nice. Um, I also have access to fabulous eggs. I don't have chickens at this very moment, but we'll be getting them soon. And uh, yeah, and then the bone broth is um, I get the chicken bones as well from the local farm. So that all comes together really well. It's You can go there and look at everything. It looks great. Mm -hmm. You know, the soil's building and everything's green and lush and everybody's really happy. So it's, it's a good breakfast. And then lunch is usually some kind of vegetables and beef of some sort. Mm -hmm. And again, there's lots of where I live. I'm lucky. There's a lot of really great local grass fed beef right here. So mm -hmm. it's very simple to get it. I don't even need to put it in the freezer. I can just get it. Yeah. So that makes it really easy. Um, and I eat bison when I can get that as well, but that's a little bit harder to get. Yeah. Um, but it got, if you've never had bison, try it. It is fabulous. Stuff. It is. No, it's, I mean, I love beef, but Bison is, is so sweet. There's something that's just so, it's got a slightly different flavor and it's, it's more just, interesting. Yeah. And if you overcook it, it's dead in an instant. Yeah. You have to be really, and beef you can overcook and still eat. This you can't. It's like there's an exact, just a really sweet point with cooking it that you just have to get used to. But it's amazing stuff. Um, and I am completely in love with bison just as creatures at this point. I'm writing mm. a book about prairie restoration. You cannot not love these creatures. Yeah. They do such amazing things for their habitat. And we don't really know why as humans, they do these things that how do they know to do that? But mm -hmm. they do. It's, it's just one of those things where you end up having like, it's, it has to be spiritual. I mean, how can the world work this beautifully? These creatures are so wise and you, you understand like how it was that, or is that so many cultures really see animals as our teachers, as our yeah. elders, as our leaders. It's like, just follow the bison. Look what they do. It's incredible. And one of their amazing habits is, um, you know, they live in dry areas on grasslands and they create what are called wallows. So they, they lie down, they put their, their horns, they put their heads down and they dig these little holes. We don't know what's in it for them, mm -hmm. right? Why do, why is they, why do they do this thing? But when they do it, um, it's usually in a place where there's a little bit of groundwater closer to the surface. So the hole then fills with water. And what they're doing is they're creating mini habitat for all these other creatures. So birds now have water, small mammals have water. They're making the water happen for everybody else who needs to live there. And there are incredible stories of people introducing bison onto their land, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere in the prairie states. And within months, you know, they haven't seen birds there in, you know, a hundred years and almost overnight, you know, within six weeks, the buffaloes are making their wallows and the birds return. Wow. And these, you know, small reptiles are there that haven't been there. It's like all these creatures that needed the water, all they were waiting for was that keystone species for the bite, the bison to return. Now there's water. Yeah. Now, there, now there's all this life comes back. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just things like that where you're just, you have to be moved to tears, really. I mean, it's so amazing. How is this possible that the bison know what to do, but they do it. Yeah. I don't know why or how, but. This is an amazing creature, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to be in awe of somebody who knows to do that. I wouldn't know to do that. Yeah. I don't have a clue how to make water for the animals that need it. Right. What I wouldn't I don't know, but they know. Yeah. You know, and they haven't forgotten. Even though they've been removed from their habitat now for over hundred years, they still remember how to do this. Right. So I, I think bison are really cool. If you can if you can get it, get it, because it's just the coolest stuff. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, and then I don't generally eat a big dinner. 
I'm not an evening person, but I'll, I'll have some kind of snack usually around four o'clock and it'll just be whatever's on hand. I have, I have access to some good cheese. I'm not an against dairy person. I know some people, dairy doesn't work for them, but dairy mm-hmm. works great for me. Yeah. Me um, Northern European ancestry and my, especially my spine with my problems. Mm. Dairy is really good for me. It's almost like a pain relief thing. It wow. really works. Yeah. So I'm totally sold on raw dairy. So yeah. um, I'll have usually also some cheese or some nuts or something and, you know, some, maybe a little fruit or some more vegetables, a big salad or something. And that's pretty much it for the day. Um, in terms of like cheating foods, you know, we all have our downfall and I do love chocolate. Yeah. So I can't eat too much because of the sugar thing, but um, I will eat some chocolate now and then. That's my big. You deserve you know, it. Big, I do, right? My big treat. Not, <laughs> there are Chocolate has five different compounds that stimulate the pleasure centers of the brain. There is a reason we like chocolate. There is. Also, the other thing about chocolate is you probably know fat carries the flavor in food. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, are on our, our taste buds. And chocolate has that amazing thing where it literally melts at 98 degrees. And of course, that's our body temperature, right? Yeah. So you put it in your mouth and that fat just melts across your tongue, stimulates the pleasure centers. I mean, it's nothing but this incredibly sensuous experience. And it's no wonder we give it out on Valentine's Day. I yeah. mean, it's just, that's it, you know, it's love. So yeah, I love my chocolate. I drink a lot of black tea as well. Okay. And I know some people, you know, caffeine is one of those things that works for you. It doesn't. Sure. But it turns out that... For people with autoimmune diseases, caffeine can often be um, a mild form of medicine. And in my case, yeah, um, you know, there's two parts to your your immune system. There's the T1 and T2. Mm-hmm. And one of them runs around killing things and the other runs around tagging things to be killed. So for about 90% of people autoimmune, T1 is overactive, T2 is underactive. And what caffeine does is this. It rebalances. Wow. Okay. I didn't yeah, know that. it's very interesting. And you'll meet people who say, if I drink caffeine, I feel incredibly sick. Mm-hmm. They've got the other pattern. So it's making okay. it worse. Yeah. People like me, it's not a question. I mean, it's like one of the only things that ever made me feel better. This is even before I had the autoimmune diagnosis, I started drinking black tea because my sister had lived in England and mm-hmm. she's like, You need to drink this. I think it's gonna help you. Yeah. And I drank it and I thought, this, I feel better. I don't know why, but there's something unexplainable has just happened. Mm-hmm. And then I read, I got the diagnosis and then I started reading up on autoimmune diseases and I found out that was what it did. And that was it. I had yeah. my explanation and I feel it. Is it so the I caffeine love- or the, the tea? It's the caffeine itself. Hmm. Some people feel better on coffee. I don't drink coffee. That's too much for me. Yeah. But the tea yeah. is is the thing. And just so just a little bit throughout the day really helps. Yeah. Also the L-theanine, you get the little endorphin rush. I mean, all that is, you know, it's fun. That's it's nice. happy. Yeah, no, it's good. And I use stevia for a little sweetener. So okay. there's no okay. no glycemic load. If you if you people don't know about stevia, you should just try it. Mm-hmm. It's a plant. And it just um it fools you into thinking it's sweet because it it gets the sweet receptors going on your tongue, but there's no calories in it. So there's no it's got no glycemic load at all. Mm-hmm. So it's something to experiment with if you're a hypoglycemic blood sugar problem person. Yeah. Um yeah. It has a weird aftertaste. I'm not going to pretend, but it took me about five days and I'm totally used to it. So yeah. it's something to try if you've got a sweet tooth problem and a blood sugar problem. So one thing as you're getting started with it, it's tempting to uh, <laughs> to put in as much as you would have with sugar or something else. But don't do that. I remember the, It'd be so disgusting. Yeah. yeah the first time I saw it in Austin, I went to a coffee shop and I was like, so I love coffee. And uh, I go and I get this, you know big thing of coffee, freshly roasted, totally excited for it. And I'm just like, all right, I'll make it a little bit sweet. I'll see this. I was really excited about this because it seemed like it was a new natural sweetener. And I tasted it and I almost spit it out. It's like, it's so sweet that it becomes very bitter and kind of nasty. So you can, uh, if you are getting started with stevia, number one, make sure it's actually stevia because now the food manufacturers are in and making all these synthetics and other garbage. Just make sure that it actually is. And then number two, start slowly. (laughs) And also there's a whole bunch of different brands and they all taste different. They so do. if you don't like the 
first time, try another brand. I swear to you, you might like another one. Yeah. Because there's some that I hate and there's a few that I really like. Right. And so just work your way through them. If it's it's worth trying, really, if, if sugar is something you struggle with, this is something that can work for you. Yeah. You just got to, you got to make it work, but you know, you'll figure it out. So it's worth doing. Totally. So that's so, pretty much what I eat on a, on a daily basis. Nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's easy. It's all here and I'm supporting local farms. It's like, mm-hmm. it all comes together and that really makes you feel whole way. And I just love seeing the grass. Yeah. You know, when I go to the farms, it looks so beautiful and you can see they're building soil. Mm-hmm. And that's really the main thing, the main question. It's not anymore, you know, what's dead on my plate because everything on that plate is dead. Plants are alive. They're quite sentient. They do amazing things. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, a lot of plants are carnivorous and we don't think about them being carnivorous, but they are. Yeah. Tomatoes, okay. for instance, are quite carnivorous. Mm-hmm. They kill insects and then they passively wait. Some, some of them actually suck nutrients right out of the insect into their stems because they've got tiny little prickers that actually get the insects to stick to them. Wow, yeah. And then they just absorb the the, the you know the nutrients through that. Mm-hmm. Others of them, it's slightly more passive. They kill the insects. The insects drop to the ground. And the plant knows that in a week, two weeks, a month, two months, however long it takes, that body, those nutrients degrade. They are degraded by other creatures, bacteria, whatever. And they will be able to absorb those nutrients through their roots. So they're killing in place. Yeah. We don't yeah. think of them as predators because they don't have teeth. And yeah. we're not afraid of them. They are predators. There's no question. Um, And they're very active in their lives. They just don't walk around. But the more you learn about plants and what they do, I mean, again, you just have to be in awe of how amazing this is. I mean, they do incredible biological warfare on each other, Mm -hmm. on animals, you know, on insects and stuff. Um, And they also communicate in ways that are really pretty stunning. Mm -hmm. You know, they warn each other. Oh, we've had an infestation over here. You know, we're getting hit by locusts. You might want to ramp up your production of insecticides and then the plants next door will do that mm-hmm. and we'll get ready for the infestation. And now they're more resilient against the the predators that are coming to get them. So they yeah. communicate yeah. through their roots. They send incredible messages through the, you know, the rhizome, the mycorrhiza. Um, all of this makes life possible for us. And I just, I think we need to be humble in the face of it. We have no idea what's going on out there. Yeah. And the more you yeah. learn, the more in awe you are. Right. I mean, we cannot photosynthesize. I have no way to get energy out of the sun. All I can do is eat the creatures that do that or the creatures that eat the creatures that do that. And I just need to be humble because mm-hmm. we're just the icing on the cake on this planet. They, nobody needs us. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and even though we've done so much damage, um, I remember growing up, it, it was an old farmhouse and we had all these beautiful stone walls. And the cool thing was like being a little kid as you played out in the, in the woods, like you would come across these stone walls, but you'd see these towering pine trees and other mm-hmm. Uh, enormous trees and and you know i remember being a little kid and, and asking my parents like how how did this happen and they're just like oh well this all used to be a farm it was all fields um and it's just extended you know pretty much this this whole neighborhood and all the neighbor's property and all the way to the lake and i just thought that that was so amazing but you see it now and the world does start to come back you know even yeah. though we have done all this damage amazing things happen when we get out of the world's way and i think the best way we can do that is by living the way that humans are supposed to live in the way that you describe Well, an incredible example of that is Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. You can go look on the pictures online, but having removed the most of the people for you know what twenty, thirty years now, the place is a biological reserve that's just sprung to life. Mm -hmm. And this is you know set aside the radiation damage, which is quite real. I don't mean to minimize that, but there are multiple packs of wolves now at Chernobyl. Not just a wolf, not just a pack, multiple packs of wolves, which means that that entire food chain has come back to life because they're, you know, they're apex predators. There are Przewalski's horses, which are those rare European horses. There are herds of them now 
at, at on the Chernobyl site hmm. because nobody's killing them, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's just, their habitat has come back. They have come back. There's all these incredible water birds that are, you know, waterfowl that are, you know, horribly, you know, endangered everywhere. These eagles and stuff that have now come back. And it's amazing to look at the pictures because it's just this amazing abundance of life that's returned there, which, you know, in one way you can say, well, even a nuclear disaster is better for the planet than civilization and its destruction. Ironic is that. <laughs> and I will say there are still some people who stayed and the people who mostly stayed were the old women who said, I live here, you're not removing me. And they're there with their goats and their chickens eating their yogurt and their beet kvass and they're fine, you know, <laughs> and they're not killing anything. It's like, this is just how we live here. And they can live with the wolves and the horses, and that's who's there. Yeah. And a few people also have just trickled back. Same thing. It's old people who are like, mm -hmm. I just miss my home. Yeah. I'm not going to live in a city. I want to go back to where I lived. So they're all there living in peace. And it's an amazing – go look at the pictures. You will be so amazed at yeah. how beautiful it is. And this is on top of – I'm not trying to minimize the horrors of what happened there, but this is what happens when you just get out of the way. Life will return. Mm -hmm. so I'm not out of hope. I there think we, hope. we could – I could, we, we could repair this planet. Yeah. And the statistic that I love the most is that if we could restore even 75% of the world's grasslands, which have been destroyed by agriculture, let's be very clear, but even 75%, if we could repair, if we could just let them come back mm -hmm. with their appropriate remnants in about 15 years, we could sequester all of the carbon that's been released since the beginning of the industrial age. Wow. So we could get it back under 350 parts per million, which is mm -hmm. the real cutoff. Um, it wouldn't take that long and it doesn't take any technology. All we have to do is let the planet do what it does. Grass is incredibly good at building topsoil. That's what it does. That's what grasslands are, is that yeah. huge bank of soil. If we just get out of the way and carbon is the basic building block, of course, of that soil. Mm -hmm. So it just pulls it out of the air. Yeah. We could do this, right? We don't need to panic. We just need to do it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's such a great message. And with that, we're just about out of time, but uh, Lier, you're leaving such a tremendous legacy and you may or may not even know that, but you are. And I, I can say as kind of a representative of the next generation that your work is very much appreciated and uh, we all think that you're doing great stuff. So why don't you tell folks a little bit more about what you're working on now and what's coming up and where they can find you? Well, I'm writing a book now about restoring the prairies. Like I just mentioned, mm -hmm. that's my hopeful statistic for the day. Um, explaining how we might do this, why we should do it, you know, where to go from here? Because we need some solutions and we need them fast. And I really want the people who care the most to understand the depth of the problem because right now they don't. Yeah. Um, but once you've named agriculture, it's like, well, where do we go from there? Mm -hmm. So that's what this, that's what I'm trying to write about. Other people have already written this book, but I'm writing it in my way. Mm -hmm. There's a really fabulous book called um, Cows Save the Planet or Cows Save the Earth. And it's about exactly this. So, yeah. you know, other people have come before me, but I'm, I'm trying to do it as well. So you can, you know, do your own research on it, but that's what we need to do. That's what, so that's what the book is. Um, more information about me, uh, if you just go to my website, you can look at my other books. You can see where I'm going to be speaking, all that kind of stuff. And it's really easy as long as you can spell my name. So <laughs> it's learkeith.com. <laughs> if you can't figure out how to spell it, it's fine. If you just type in vegetarian myth, that's easy. Yeah. You will find me. There is only <laughs> one. I am infamous. <laughs> that will lead to me directly. Um, and then again, the other resources I really love is, of course, Western Price Foundation. That's a gateway to everything. Mm -hmm. So Western A. Price and also Eat Wild, Joe Robinson's yeah. Oh, yeah. website. It's where to find the good stuff. She's got great books about grass feeding, why it's important. All that is on her website as well. A fabulous resource. So start there. Everything will open from those two sites. You will find it all. Awesome. Leah, thank you so much for coming on. I'd love to have you on again soon. 
thank you so much for your work and for having this podcast, for spreading the word. There's no point in being a writer if people aren't going to read it. So thanks for, for helping me get the word out too. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks okay. again.